Katie and I are preaching a six-week sermon series titled Joy Anyway, in which we use Paul's letter to the Philippians to explore how joy is possible not only in these delightful summer days, but also in the midst of suffering and hardship. Philippians is a short letter. In fact, if we preach six 1,800-word sermons about Philippians, we'll have said five times more words about the letter than are actually in it. The author, Paul, is the very definition of sanguine, writing from a jail whose location we do not know. He uses the words joy or rejoice 14 times in this letter to the church at Philippi. Today, we will dive deeper into the body of the letter in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where Paul begins to advise the believers, asking them to make his joy complete. Please pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Paul says this, If, then, there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. In these five verses, Paul does three things. He reminds the Philippians of the good work that God is doing in their midst. He asks them to make his joy complete, and then he tells them how to do that. Paul's affection for the church at Philippi is clear in his naming of the love, partnership, and sympathy that is present in this congregation. He starts with the positive, which is always a good strategy, before asking them to further their good work. Paul reminds them of who they are and the good that they have done. Now, Philippi was a medium-sized farm town in the province of Macedonia, located in modern-day Greece, and it was somewhat of a retirement community in the Roman Empire. Those citizens who pledged their allegiance to the emperor received tax breaks and enjoyed a pretty comfortable life. According to the book of Acts, Paul goes to Philippi after he has a vision of a man from Macedonia begging for help. After he arrives, he goes looking for a place of prayer on the Sabbath, and he stumbles across a group of women praying at the river. One of them, Lydia, is a dealer in purple cloth. And after she and her family are baptized, Lydia offers Paul a place to stay and likely financial support for his ministry. And just a short time after this prayer gathering, Paul casts out a spirit from an enslaved girl who is telling fortunes on the street corner. When her owners can no longer exploit the girl's fortune-telling for cash, Paul is arrested because it turns out that disrupting profit streams has a way of landing you in in hot water then and now. Nevertheless, Paul is released from prison after a dramatic earthquake. And now we fast forward a couple years. We don't know exactly where or when, but Paul is imprisoned 
again, and his life is at risk. The church at Philippi seems to be doing fairly well. They've given Paul some financial support, but there's some kind of tension amongst the believers, possibly between the leaders of the congregation. So Paul writes them a letter in which he challenges them, among other things, to live not as Roman citizens, but as citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being a full citizen of God's kingdom is good news for women and others who are denied the rights of Roman citizenship. But for those who might be settled in to enjoy a comfy tax-sheltered retirement a short drive from the coast, Paul's challenge is risky, more costly. Why be a citizen of the gospel and a member of the church committee if you have to give up your morning golf and brunch? Paul's request of this brave and faithful church community who risk the safety and security of their Roman citizenship to worship Jesus and live a gospel-shaped life, his request is that they make his joy complete. Like we parents who are maybe tearfully, dropping our kids off at college this month. For Paul, there is nothing more joyful than seeing those we love find real friends and put their gifts and passions to work in doing good in their corner of the world. Paul desires this complete joy, not just for himself, but for his beloved church at Philippi. And so he offers them a formula, unity, humility, and the mind of Christ. This same recipe points us toward God's word for us today. Then and now, living a gospel-shaped life requires a like-minded community of support. Unity is elusive and difficult. Today, church folks might argue about anything from a jello salad potluck recipe to political leanings. And though conflict is inevitable, Paul urges Christian communities to focus on what unites them. And here, I think Kenilworth Union Church has an advantage because of its founding aspirations. In, those, in that first church constitution, Kenilworth Union Church, of Kenilworth Union Church, it says, recognizing the minor differences which exist among believers as being consistent with Christian integrity, we have united as a church of Jesus Christ upon the great essentials of the Christian faith. Friends, I am grateful to be serving in this welcoming congregation which seeks to love God and neighbor above all while allowing room for various expressions of that love to take shape. And I'm especially grateful this year when thousands of churches across the country from my home denomination are voting to separate, including my childhood church. Unity in diversity is difficult, and it requires humility the acceptance of uncertainty, and an openness to the perspective of others. Paul says, do nothing from selfish selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. A scholar suggests that this particular piece of advice is is directed to the leaders of the church in Philippi, because to ask humility of those with less power and privilege goes against the values of this church community, which seeks to empower those on the edges of the Roman Empire. It's a hard truth that when faith communities fail to put others above or at least equal to themselves, people are harmed. The subjugation of women, chattel slavery, 
the abuse of Native Americans in boarding schools, are all examples of the damage theological doctrines that belittle and dehumanize do. Humility is necessary to avoid the mistakes of past religious leaders who have provided justification for oppression and harm. And one commentator said this, Paul knows the dark side of life. Writing to his friends from prison with an uncertain future behind him, Paul is living into the moment. Every moment is a gift from God filled with the reality of God all around him. In Christ, energized by the Spirit, we rejoice too in that reality. In the presence of God with us, we are now free to throw ourselves into the struggles and issues of life with abandon and maybe even smile. Joy is tangible and ineffable. You've heard me mention before that Brene Brown researches joy, and one of her most surprising findings is that joy is not the cause of gratitude, but the result of it. To put it simply, if you want to feel more joy, practice gratitude. Write what you are thankful for in a journal. Name three things that you appreciate at the end of the day. Talk about the gifts of food, family, love, and life around the dinner table. You can practice gratitude if you lose your job, if you don't make the team, are grieving a lost love, or even like Paul, if you are in prison. Because joy, as one spirituality website defined it, is an essential practice. It grows out of faith and grace and gratitude and hope and love. It is the pure delight in simply being alive. Joy is our elated response to feelings of happiness, experiences of pleasure and awareness of abundance. It is also the deep satisfaction we know when we serve others and are able to be glad for their good fortune. So joy is a practice and it is a positive emotion like wonder and awe. This summer's children and family ministry newsletter curated by the wise Greta Connor is inspired by Goats and Soda's weekly dose of wonder. Greta has lifted up everyday delights, turtles and trees, lullabies and lakes, chicken clucks and children's play. Because neuroscientists have learned that emotions are not hardwired. In fact, we have the ability to influence our emotions and the ones that arise in our lives. Practicing joy and wonder and awe allow us to experience them more frequently. And as evidence of this, I will tell you that I was having a particularly stressful day when I sat down to write a sermon about joy. I know that's a little ironic, but <laughs> I took 30 minutes to take a walk to the little pond in my neighborhood where I startled a few squeaking frogs and watched turtles bob underneath the surface of the sparkling water. And I named the gifts of God that I could see before me and I breathed in that unique August air with the prairie plants um, scent, and I chose joy over stress, mostly. Joy requires this kind of attentiveness. The 14 of us who just returned from the wilderness trip attended to God's gifts as we backpacked through the pristine and remote paths of Olympic National Park. There were no cell phones and there was no social media scrolling and we only had a satellite phone so we had basically no idea what was going on in the rest of the world. Our new youth minister, Sarah, put it this way. During our week in the wilderness, the confirmation students and I found a new appreciation for our own aliveness. We were left with no option 
but to pay deep attention to the natural splendor around us and the functioning capacity of our bodies and spirits. The group that I happened to be hiking with noticed tiny river creatures, little bugs, and tiny water worms. We saw a translucent fungus growing along the trail and witnessed a moon so bright it blocked out all the stars. We laughed over endless games of cards, and we even enjoyed the nightly ritual of choosing which freeze-dried meal to eat. In the wilderness, a pack of mac and cheese or ramen feels like a Thanksgiving feast because joy is relational, requiring us to connect with God and with one another. The people that we hiked with are probably not people that we hang out with on our, in our regular lives, but on that trip, we built connections based on trust, on the trust that we can support one another in good times and bad as a church family. Joy in a troubled world is an attitude and an emotion and an act of faith. Paul's exhortation to the church at Philippi assumes two things. One, that joy can be cultivated, and two, that the source of joy is God. The Greek word translated complete means fullness, but fullness of a particular kind. It is fullness of the Spirit of God which dwells among us in the gifts of sky and mountain, river and freeze-dried dinners, and even in the tender goodbye at the dorm parking lot. Complete joy recognizes that God is ever-present and desires flourishing for all people. Paul's is an Easter joy, where the inseparable happiness and sadness of Jesus' life and death meld into deep love and abiding hope that are magnified in community and more powerful than any circumstance we face. Thanks be to God. Amen.